0: I've been saying this for a long time but it still still surprises people. Log4j as of today between 35 and 38% of the downloads of Log4j will be of the vulnerable versions. Still still. It it flatlined. It, it there was a huge spike in the adoption of the newer versions right. in the weeks following and we were pretty optimistic but then it flatlined at about 60 to 68% of the the good stuff leaving, you know, somewhere other. What do you attribute their- that to? People don't understand what's in their software. They don't manage their supply chain.
1: When times are tough, engineering leaders need as much help as they can get. Linear B helps dev teams continuously improve by providing correlated data, context, and automated workflows that help streamline code delivery and improve developer experience. Learn more at LinearB.io. And check out our free tool, GitStream. GitStream is helping developers everywhere merge their code faster by revolutionizing the pull request review process. Every pull request is different. It's time we start treating them that way. Download GitStream for free and learn more at GitStream.com. Now, on to today's episode. I am back live from the Dev Interrupted Dome at DevOps Enterprise Summit. It's a lot of Ds. And I've got two incredible guests joining me today on the podcast. Welcome, first of all, Brian Fox. You are the CTO of Sonatype. Thanks for having me. Really stoked to have you here. We've got a really exciting uh, state of software supply chain report to Dev into. that. I know Sonotype has just released your eighth edition. Is that correct?
0: That's correct. Yeah.
1: Fantastic. And I know uh, your colleague, Stephen McGill, the uh, VP of product innovation at Sonotype, just did a plenary discussion on this as well. That's right. Yeah. Thank you. This is going to be great. We're going to dig in, get some detail, give the audience some context into some of the exciting stuff that's been happening. It does. But before we get into it. I do want to give the audience a chance to get to know you both a little bit. So, Brian, why don't we start off with you? How did you end up at Sonotype? You're the CTO. What's your background?
0: My background is in software development. I did a lot of open source. Java for a long time. I uh, was pretty involved in the Apache Maven project for a number of years. I was the uh, the chair of the project for a while as well. So I'm still involved in, in uh, the day-to-day of the Apache Software Foundation. I'm That's also awesome. Uh, a governing board currently at the Open Source Security Foundation as well.
1: So you have a lot of free time, I take it. Yeah, lots of free time. Yeah, you're never busy. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you for making time to come on the podcast. We're excited to have you here. And uh, Stephen, what about yourself? VP of Product Innovation is a cool title. How'd you get it?
2: Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I I love the product innovation role. I'm basically leading a research team that's developing new technology and capabilities can feed into Sonatypes products, but also doing community research like for the software supply chain report that we're going to be talking about today. I ended up at Sonatype after I founded a company called MuseDev uh, that Sonatype acquired a couple of years ago. And uh, yeah, just, you know, I always respected what Sonatype does and, and their role in the community and, and the products that they produce. You know, even before I joined Sonatype, I was collaborating with them on, on the report. And going back as far as 2019, I've been sort of at least an outside consultant on, on the research.
1: So you've been report. a partner for a while and yeah. it just made sense, it sounds like. Yeah. How big is Sonatype now?
0: Oh, uh, we're probably over 700 employees at this point. That's fantastic. It's, it's it. getting That's quite large. It's a testament yes. to your
1: word. Yes. And I'm guessing that as you've seen that organization grow, you've had challenges that have come with it. Has there, there been anything that you've seen either at DevOps Enterprise Summit or within the uh, industry where you're identifying, okay, here's something we need to work on within our engineering team, or here's a, a goal for us around maybe Dora Metrics or something else that you're taking away?
0: Yeah, I mean every organization has its challenges. Always scaling, you know, we we grapple with all of those things. Fortunately, I spend my time looking more at the industry trends, trying to help other people get better. You know, and and uh, usually we're we're dog fooding and and following our own best practices. Uh, but I think the challenges with managing the supply chain uh, start to come in when you get bigger, when you get towards where where we are, but certainly much, much larger organizations have a have a much harder time dealing with it as well.
1: And so it sounds like that's a big focus of your work, Stephen, and your team around the product innovation side is how do we solve these scaling challenges and then that dive into what does it mean for our software supply chain? Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, yeah,
2: that's right. We really uh, look across uh, the software stack, the development process. You know, looking at uh, the code developers are writing, and also the open source libraries that they're bringing in. You know, everything that goes into modern applications, and then you know, we try and find best practices, evaluate sort of common wisdom and see, you know, what what passes the sniff test when you like line it up against real world data. You know, we try and be data driven in, in all of the analysis we do in the report. And I think that's, that's sort of one of the key values of the report is we get to do some sort of deep dive each year on some new
1: aspect of open source risk management and, and learn something new. I appreciate that you're both talking about like applying this to the real world because I think it's really easy for some of those academic research style of reports to go, oh, we're just aggregating the data and ignoring like the real world challenges and the context of different organizations and how they deal with things. So I, I love that's something you're thinking about and considering, but let's give some context to the audience about this year's report. It just came out as my understanding mm-hmm. what's in the report. What should they know?
0: So the, a little bit of background first. Sonatype has always been the company that runs the what, what's called the Maven Central Repository. This is where basically all of the world's open source Java is. And so that gives us really unique insights into behavioral patterns, download statistics that most other people don't have the ability to see. And, and for that reason, we've been building products and services uh, to help people solve this problem for well over a decade. We founded the company 15 years ago, but we really saw the supply chain problem before the words supply chain were yeah. understood uh, within within the software context. And And, you know, we've been speaking about it for a long time. It's been frustrating. I and, 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 you know, the fact that the world kind of now has generally accepted this term and starting to talk about it is a start, but it's just a start. And so the supply chain, like we said before, this is the eighth year that we've done this, has looked at lots of different aspects of this. You know, previous years, you, you and Gene were doing research on, you know, h- how do you quantify what a good open source project is, right? Yeah. In terms mm-hmm. of the mean time to update. You know, after that, we started pivoting a little bit more towards the consumer side. You know, to try to find advice that that organizations that aren't open source maintainers how can they do a better job? And and really, that's what a lot of the most interesting findings of this year's report were. You know, so simple. You know, maybe shocking statistics, right? You I know, love but,
1: a shocking statistic. Let's go.
0: <clears throat> so I've been saying this for a long time, but it still still surprises people. Log for J as of today in today's, you know, uh, I don't even know the date, October, October something, 2022. 17th or yeah. something, yeah. Uh, 10 months after Log4J. Today, between 35 and 38% of the downloads of Log4J will be of the vulnerable versions. Still? Still. It it flatlined. It, it There was a huge spike in, in the adoption of the newer versions right. in the weeks following, and we were pretty optimistic, but then it flatlined at about, 60 to 68% of the, the good stuff leaving, you know, somewhere else. What do you outside. attribute that to? People don't understand what's in their software. They don't manage their supply chain, right? And so that's, that's one high-level statistic. The other one that is new in this report is that at the time, so we, we looked at all of the vulnerable downloads of, of Central going back, what, a, a year, I think, yeah. at least. And at the time the things were downloaded, 96%? Yep. of them were of things that already had a fix available, right? And so the the thing that is is uh, is troubling for me is that in the wake of Log4j, the world had a bit of a collective freakout. That they said, "Oh my gosh, there's a we problem. We fix this. Yeah, we have to fix this. Uh, we're using free software. They're they're volunteers, which people interpret volunteer to be amateur, not highly passionate, educated people whose hobby is not." something other than software that they do it during a day job and yeah. then they go home and they work on it. So mostly maintainers are very skilled engineers. The world freaked out about that. But the the real problem from that statistic I just showed is the consumers, the organizations that are pulling these things down are doing so recklessly, right? It's not that the open source maintainers haven't fixed the problem. 96% of the time they have and people keep downloading it. Mm. Right, so the collective freak out and the focus on funding and improving open source is solving that four percent of the problem, and it's going to take a long time. You know how long will it take before you educate the next level of engineers to do a better job in the future? How long will it take before we provide tools and 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 you know you've got this mountain of existing code that's out there we're talking decades before these changes actually make a meaningful difference, and yet companies that are managing their stuff as a supply chain today are are what, 10, 15, 20% better at least than than people who aren't. Right. Mm. So there are very specific things that people can do today. You don't have to wait for the world to solve the four percent problem. And that's the the thing that just, you know, I feel like I just want to scream it and shake everybody and say, wake up. This is this is this is real.
1: Well, I'm glad that you're both coming on the show to talk about this because it's very clear there's still an awareness problem and still an inability to kind of dive into this and Stephen, I'm I'm curious. Like beyond this, what else have you identified as like, hey, here are major issues. Yeah,
2: you know, one thing that we looked at uh, in addition to the the consumption side that that Brian was talking about is the production side and how might you go about choosing components that are maybe likely to have a better vulnerability history, right? So we were really interested in uh, in those dev practices, and you know. This is solving the 4%, you know, in, in, in some sense, but, but it's also making sure that, you know, those vulnerabilities that, that come out, that get patched responsibly, that's still work that you have to take on as a consumer, right? If a project is keeping up to date with security vulnerabilities, but it does it by releasing 10 patches a year that you have to apply, you know, that's a, that's a burden on you, right? So we were curious, like, is there a way to try to predict which projects would sort of be lower lower overhead in terms of having more to respond to? And so to do that, uh, we looked at some of these development best practices that are being pushed by organizations like the Open Source Security Foundation, things like doing code review, implementing buzzing, signing releases, and, you know, sort of locking down the development process and the CI pipelines. And we looked at, you know, which of those practices are associated with with better vulnerability histories, you know, more secure projects. And so that was a really interesting analysis because it's very skewed. There's like four practices that are by far have the majority of it, the impact on, on the outcomes. What are they? Yeah. So <laughs> let's see if I can remember them all. So code review. Makes sense. With uh, number one, which was, I think, really cool because it's been sort of lore, accepted lore in the development community for a while that code review is like one of the best practices you can implement to improve code quality. And so to see it validated by such a large scale study, we looked at over 30,000 projects uh, in, wow. in this study that that was really cool. Number two was not checking binaries into the repository. That's another sort of best practice. Uh, You know, I think that makes sense. binaries are a potential attack vector, you know, there's no transparency, you know, when you have uh, binary components checked in. Uh, Another one was pinning dependencies, which I think shows the importance of dependency management, you know, that that's a huge portion of where where the risk comes in. uh, Those two are those two are
0: related. If you're checking your dependencies into your source control, Yes. you're probably doing something That's not right. quite right. right? Exactly. So I think those are almost opposite sides of the same coin. That's right. Those yeah. two go together. And then the
2: the fourth one goes together with code review, which is branch protection, ah. so making sure that you can't actually push code until you've gone through right. the review
1: process. Yeah. Interesting. I, I think these are really compelling things to remember, not just for open source projects, but for enterprises as well. Like, I mean, yeah. you, you brought this up earlier. Okay, great. Most of the open source projects have made the fix at this point. But 30 plus percent of people are still mm-hmm. using the wrong durations. What would you say to engineering leaders out there who maybe aren't thinking about their software supply chain or maybe not completely addressing it at this point?
0: Yeah, you know, the, the, there's a number of, of, of ways that I like to attack this. But, I, you know, I bring it back to our physical goods and our, our expectations as consumers of things. We don't have the ability, most organizations don't have the ability to affect a recall. Because mm. they don't know what dependencies they put in their software. That's why 30% of the consumption is still of log4j. Yeah. Because they don't know what's in there. We would not tolerate that from our auto manufacturers or our plane manufacturers. Absolutely. Not. Why do we allow that to be the case for our software? But yet that is the sad situation that we live in. Right? And so I, I often go through, you know, this table exercise when, I, when I'm giving a speech. I say, imagine I tell you about a new vulnerability today. Uh, sometimes this happens apache commons collections text the text module had one just what two days ago could you uh, leader of an organization tell me are you using any version of that anywhere in your organization most people can't answer that question and 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 it's worse than that can you then tell me are you using the vulnerable versions of it right because if you can't answer the first one you certainly can't answer the second one and then how will you be able to remediate that if you have no idea, right? Sending around 4,000 emails asking all of your developers, uh, your team leads, are you using this component, is not the way to respond. Ineffective, and it creates a huge tax on your that, team. That's right. A- and, you know, the 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 flip side of this is, you know, the industry has centered around the, the concept of SBOM, a software bill of materials. And, mm-hmm. and in fact, last year, there was an executive order for anybody selling software to the government to be able to produce the bill of materials. And, and that's great because it's elevated the conversation. My observation, though, in talking to prospects and, and other people in the industry is that they're too focused on, I need to produce this bill of materials because somebody else has asked me for it. Not because it helps my team understand exactly. what's wrong. The bill of materials is a means to an end. The understanding of all of your dependencies in your organization is actually what's important because now you can start to take steps. You can remediate. When you can answer those three questions I asked immediately, you can alert the teams about it. You can start to make important decisions like, why do we have, you know, 10 different XML parsers? Why is our surface area so large? You know, and and without that information, you can't be in, begin to really manage it. And so bringing it back to the auto industry for a moment, what people are interpreting this, the S-bomb mandate is, like, let's imagine we said to our auto manufacturers, You don't have to do a recall. You just have to print out the list of materials that went into this thing and stick it in the glove compartment when you ship the car. Like, that's pretty ridiculous, right? Probably not going to work super well. It's not going to work very well. It's ridiculous on its face. And yet that's what so many people are focused on. They're saying, I just need to produce the bill of materials. They're not stopping and thinking, what should I be doing once I have that visibility?
1: So how do we realign the industry so that people are actually thinking about, oh, this is something that can benefit me if I t- take this approach throughout my organization?
0: Well, there's lots of studies. Uh, you know, I, I think it was PNC today gave a great talk about how they've used some of the tools to do automated uh, enforcement and governance and kind of federate this problem down to the development teams and and how effective that has been. Right. So the the answer is not necessarily centralized control it's not the security guy coming with a list of of uh mistakes for for engineers to fight over fixing it's building this deeply into your pipeline and then being able to provide that information in real time to the developers in the context right and that's some of the stuff that you guys did at muse before yeah. you know that 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 we we merged because you you realized that providing the feedback in the pull request was so much more likely to get fixed. I mean, you could you could. I'd talk love about to dive that. into
1: that because yeah. I'll, I'll say like PRs and code reviews are a big sticking point that we're diving into. So I'd love to get hear like how you've been approaching yeah. that.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I at MuseDev and now the technology that went into that is a Sona, known as Sonatype Lift. It's a Sonatype product that's out there, uh, integrates with GitHub. And, um, you know, the whole uh, philosophy with that was what you need to, if if you really want to improve software quality, and you want to make sure that the sorts of errors that code scanning tools can detect, you know, static analysis tools can can find these things, you want to make sure those aren't getting into code. You need to be presenting them to developers at the right time and in the right context, right? And and the pull request is basically that, and to the right, right developer, yeah, into the yeah, exactly. So like if you can, if you point out, and so we we pointed out issues as comments and pull requests. So you know, a developer submits a pull request automated tooling runs. There's just a whole suite of tools to cover sort of various types of, of issues. Uh, and then those results get communicated to that developer who wrote the code shortly after they wrote the code, right? When it's still fresh in their mind. And, and reduce it, context switching that way. That's right. That's right. And so they're it's, in
0: the mode of effectively asking for feedback. That's totally. the point of the pull request. Exactly.
2: Right. It, yeah. Right. It's this great social process that you're hooking into. That's all about, you know, reflecting on, on the code and if, whether you can improve it or not. And so yeah, I think that it's super important to find the right way to introduce these things and it can have a big impact. There's like uh, there's a story from Facebook, actually, where they had a new static analysis tool that they were rolling out across their mobile apps. Right. They wanted to eliminate crashes. So, that, you know, their mobile apps are written in Java and Objective-C. If you get a null pointer exception, it crashes the app like, you know, Facebook collects a lot of data so they can tell you know, when the app crashes, we lose this much ad revenue from this user. Right. Maybe. So they can directly align it to ROI. Right. So they're like, we need to fix this. We want to roll out this tool across the organization. And they first did that by like running overnight and like submitting issues to developers to fix uh, and basically saw all of them ignored. Right. You know, zero percent. They tracked what they called fix rate, which is, you know, how many of the reports actually get, get remediated and fixed. Uh, and it was zero, basically. And then when they integrated into the pull request system, it went up to 70% for the same issues, wow. right? Same issues, just a different mechanism of delivery. And so I think that just highlights
1: how important the right type of integration is. That's right. That's really fascinating. So I don't know if we've talked about this pr- previously, but PR is an area where we've done a lot of research as well, because we've we've kind of seen that same issue of like, okay, like this is an opportunity, but it's also a sticking point in development processes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did an analysis about a million PRs with like, I think over 10,000 teams that we worked with on this. And our data found that like this is maybe the biggest pain point in the process right now. We've done a ton of improvement on CI/CD, helping improve people delivering uh, pieces. And, and to your point it's about like software supply chain, there's huge issues here. And the PR process is where we can weed some of that out, but it becomes a nightmare in some orgs for developers uh, of like is this an effective review? Uh, am I getting the context I need for my right. review? Right. And yeah, and you don't want to
2: overload that process, right? No. Like it should. Always primarily be about humans talking with other humans about code, right? Yeah. You don't want it to be just this stream of messages from bots, right? So you've got to balance those things.
1: Yeah, we've been trying to use bots in some ways. So like we have uh we have Worker B as part of our our, our linear B product, and what it does is it helps provide a couple of things to developers to say, hey, like let's help you find some time where it makes sense to review this code. So we have a, an estimated time to review function we have created. So if you know a PR is over, let's say fifty lines of code, we can say, oh, this is going to take you we think 10 or 15 minutes or it's going to take you an hour. And so we, we've started to do some of that. So it's like, okay, let's try to help improve the efficiency of the team around this. But it's really easy to go overboard with a kind of notification mm-hmm. process. So I think that's been an important piece for us. We actually just released a free tool called GitStream, uh, where it's the idea is like it lets each team to kind of define their rules for how they want to route their PRs. And one thing we've been trying, and I'd be curious to get your guys' take on this is, okay, maybe for some teams, they have a two reviewer process because it's like a high compliance area can we use an automated review for reviewer one and then have a specialized reviewer who we route this to for reviewer two to speed up the process and like lower the burden on the team? Or if it's something that's maybe it's only a documentation change, we can just have this be an automated review. We can say, looks good to me through this automated tooling. Does that kind of opportunity, do you think you could do something with that to say, okay, like I'm wondering, I guess kind of spitballing here, like could we identify, hey, there, there's a log4j vulnerability issue here and we can yeah, kind of like scan to see which which iteration you're doing and ping uh, against another database to say, hey, like, is this up to date? Is uh, is that kind of thing where SonaType's thinking of like, how can we yeah. sort of evaluate that?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're able to not just code quality, but, you know, the SEA, if you've introduced a vulnerability, you know, through a dependency change. But I think some of, the, some of the work we're doing right now is teasing out, you know, making sure that you provide findings that are relevant to the code that was just changed yeah. and not using the pull request as the place to dump all the pre-existing findings because that's be. not helpful either, yeah. right? So it's a, it's a fine fine art to find that balancing act between paying down the technical debt and, you know, not overwhelming people at the same time. So, you know, there, there's a real challenge there. I, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but in, in addition to all this other stuff we're talking about, there are these, these rising, you know, attacks of intentionally malicious things. So in previous years, it was thousands of percent off of small numbers, but this year it was, what, another 600? Yeah. And and so the average is 742% every year for the last three years. And it doesn't yeah. matter who
1: you talk yeah. to, Gardner, or whoever, right. they're all like, oh, this is just going to keep going up. That's,
0: that's right. And, you know, there, there's a ton of money behind this. You know, nice. there, there's some slides that I have and some statistics that that have come from studies that, that you know, showed that in 2021, the worldwide, uh, you know, drug industry was like $650 billion. At the same time, cybercrime was six trillion. Yeah. Right. And one was
1: just two trillion a couple of years ago. Yeah. And it's just and it's predicted to and get that.
0: to 12 trillion in the next couple of years. Right. Wow. And so, if you look at that in terms of, and, and that's the money that is invested into the bad guys. Yeah. That's the VC funds, if you want to think <laughs> of it that way. Yeah. That's <laughs> a lot of money being poured yeah. into this, and they're all coming after us. And that's why you're seeing this rise uh, of the supply chain attacks, because right now, so many of these companies, like we're talking about, can't even answer those simple questions I I talked to mm-hmm. about. And so they're not even able to deal with the next part of it, which is the malicious attacks. Right. And these things are exfiltrating data, they're stealing credentials, they're doing all kinds of things. And, you know, the the thing that I try to try to really push on for people is to make them understand that their developers and their development infrastructure is increasingly coming under attack. Yeah. And the reason why that's important for people to understand, if they're not really getting why I'm 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 pushing on this if you're following sort of, let's say a little bit of legacy practices and you're doing scans before you put things into production, before you release it to your customers, right? Yeah, that That's a good thing. You should be doing that at, at least, but you're missing the attacks on the development infrastructure when that happens.
1: Well, to your point, they've shifted left on where the attacks are coming. That's right. Ways.
0: and And so, and many of those attacks won't show up for those tools. So uh, date myself a little bit, but in the, in the 90s, browsers were inherently vulnerable, yeah. right? And so just going to the wrong website could get you hacked, right? And so the sophistication of those attacks at that time was fairly low. They weren't trying to pretend to be your bank. They didn't have to. They just needed you to get to their website and they could hack you. That's where we are right now in the sophistication of many of these malware attacks on the supply chain. They're using d- confusingly similar names you know, typo squatting, like we used to see in the domain back in the 90s. Totally. The, 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 back in the 90s, what they relied upon was somebody would go to these, w- this website, realize that this isn't my bank, not even pretend to be the bank. And then the, the person would just hit back, go figure out what they did and move on with life, not realizing I just got hacked. Yeah. That's what's happening with the development infrastructure right now. And so a developer, you know, uses an underscore instead of a dash. They get one of these uh, components that's, you know, do, exfiltrating data. It's not even, most of the time, a copy of the component it's pretending to be. So it's not mm. going to compile. It's not going to run tests. It's mm. going to immediately blow up on the developer. And because we're not even sophisticated enough to block most of those, they haven't been forced to be sophisticated enough to move to the next level. But they still can, right? There's but social they, they engineering can, they can do. Right. And so what's going to happen is the developer gets that thing. They They potentially have data exfiltrated. They go, whoops, this is the wrong dependency. They figure out their mistake. They fix it. They move on, check it in. Now your tooling that's looking for it when you go to push the release never sees that that just happened on the development side. So you have no visibility. That's all happened
1: before it even gets to the checks.
0: That's right. And and worse, with so many organizations with developers working at home now, uh, not all of them have perimeter defenses there. So some of these attacks that might not have actually been exploitable in an office because the backdoor couldn't have reached in at home, that may not be true. We right? just
1: can't rely on perimeter defenses anymore, that, right? That's you have, right. They have to have defense in depth because otherwise, like, I mean, we all have a cell phone in our pockets or sitting around somewhere. We all have at least one laptop. We probably maybe have a home machine as well. And we're bringing on the road, particularly like at a conference like this, I'm sure you brought a work laptop and you've got your phone. And I mean, there's the very basic stuff you're talking about. That's like a little more brute force of like, hey, we're just ex- exfiltrating data. But there's so much more possibility and sophistication that's going to come. Like we've seen it with the consumer attacks, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like, Phishing scams are huge. And they they return billions, if not trillions, of dollars every year to these scammers. And that social engineering is being applied in very clear attacks on enterprises sometimes. And it's starting to come more so into into what you're talking about here. But I mean, right now we're not even making them have to use it. We're just leaving these vulnerabilities out there in some way.
0: Yeah. I mean, the 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 low level of sophistication of the attacks that we're seeing right now is directly correlated to the low level of sophistication of our defenses Defenses, against it, right? It's a cat and mouse game. And I guess that's the summary of what I'm getting at. They will get more sophisticated when we do a better job of actually managing the problem. But right now it's easy pickings and it's kind of a shame because again, we would not tolerate it of our car manufacturer. We would laugh them out of the room, you know, and to bring it back to that collective log for J freak out, right? The world was saying, we need to do a better job at open source. We need to give them money. We need to give them tools. Well, remember the Takata airbag incident, right? It affected many, many auto manufacturers. Now, imagine if the response was not, we do a good job and we're able to tell you exactly which of your cars has this problem in which of the airbag spots and when it needs to be recalled, right? Instead, they said, nah, we're going to pay Takata more money to do a better job next time. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Like that's be literally yeah. it would be unacceptable. And that is what we are trying to do right now as a response to Log for as an industry. It's completely hmm. wrong. And and you know, this is why we're doing these things to try to educate people. Like, guys, this is shocking. As a profession, we have to do a better job. Yeah. Because people's lives quite literally are at stake. When hospitals get ransomwared,
1: yes. people die. Oh, Was it uh, two years ago? There was a massive uh, spate of ransomware in the UK that happened in mm-hmm. our hospitals. Like, I, this is something that is happening already and is going to continue to increase.
0: That's right. Mercy Hospital, I believe it was. Yeah. Hollywood Presbyterian mm-hmm. hol- uh, was shut down. Yeah. And, and yeah, people died because they yeah. had to be moved from one hospital to another or their ambulance was rerouted and minutes matter in, in heart attacks and strokes.
1: Absolutely. Are there other big takeaways? So obviously this is a, this is a huge issue. Like I know you've got a ton of stuff you could dive into in the report, but I'm, I'm curious what other key things you want to make sure our audience hears. Like Stephen, I think uh, the, is there anything in particular?
0: The the gap between yeah, yeah that you were talking about, yeah, I think, is a really good one.
1: Okay, mm-hmm. so we do uh,
2: we do a survey as part of the report every year, asking individuals and in software at, at enterprises about you know their practices for managing open source, the sort of outcomes, their confidence and security around their open source. It's interesting uh, to see what comes back. You know, there's sort of a lot of confidence in organizations' ability to remediate vulnerabilities that flow in through open source, which is interesting in and of itself, given, you know, the scramble to address Log4j and how much effort that all was, right? So
1: So maybe a little too much trust in us actually getting it done. A lot lot
2: of maybe, you know, unwarranted optimism there. But um, I think what was even more interesting this year was Uh, There was a clear difference between how managers responded to the survey and how individual contributors Mm. responded. And management, by and large, was much more, had a much rosier view of the organization's ability to deal with security issues. So like as an example, statistic, uh, managers were 3.5 times more likely to say that their organization could remediate a security issue in less than a day across their application portfolio. I, I don't even know okay. why you would anyone would answer yes to that. Question. Like I, I'm trying to think of an organization that could actually do that. Right.
0: But <laughs> right. But, but what was it that 68 percent of them said they they could do it, and 68 percent of them had oh, yeah. not and, been able to do it. Right. And then 68 oh, percent wow. of
2: respondents huh. said that they were confident that there were no open source, there were no vulnerable open source components in any of their applications, right? Which, which again, is a statement, like, how would you ever answer right. yes to that? Right. Yeah. But, <laughs> but yeah, when you look at the data, you know, 68% of applications, you know, have a vulnerability, have a vulnerable component somewhere in them. So, the, the, you know, those two,
1: this is why every There's year. There's cognitive dissonance happening. There. Yeah.
2: We, this is why we love to every year do a survey and then also do some data analysis and line the two yeah. up and, and
1: just see where we're diluting ourselves, right? Are there trends that you see coming where it's like, okay, yes, this is the eighth report, but next year we can already see this is going to be a bigger issue?
0: Well, the the, the malware stuff yeah. that we've talked about yeah. for the last three years, we've been ringing the bell on that. You know, in the last year or so, I think people are, are waking up to that. Log4j was not one of those. Log4j was sort of the old school, boring, not really a bug in the code, but a mm-hmm. combination of a couple of things that have been there for a long time. But those are continuing trends. Uh, So it'll be interesting to see, you know, a year on how many practices have actually changed. I know it was, it might've been the 2018 uh, report when we last did this, but we used to ask people similar questions that you were talking about, you know, how many organizations have the ability to manage their dependencies and Mm -hmm. have automated tooling. And, you know, when we started doing this eight years ago, it was in the teens, you know, 15% or so. And the last one that I, that I had seen was about 50%. That's growth. Also, would you be happy with your auto manufacturer tracking only half the parts in the car? Probably not. Probably not. No. Yeah, especially if
1: they're <laughs> uh, like an avionics manufacturer right. too. <laughs> so, yeah. so
0: is it a cup half full, half, half empty kind of thing? It's a little <laughs> bit both. It's better. And yet we yeah. still have so far to go. Okay. Yeah.
1: yeah. I, I really appreciate the passion you're both bringing to this conversation because uh, I think you're not only driving home with statistics and examples, but really driving into things that we're seeing in the industry that even I think a lot of the leaders listening to this need to confront a bit of. I know we have an excellent group of listeners. I think you're all incredible. Don't worry. But I'm sure some of us have to address this or are working through a piece of this. Or maybe you're an engineering manager listening and you're saying, oh, I really need to work with my VP to make sure we're addressing this because it does take organizational buy-in to mm-hmm. do this. Like a single team can't really fix the problem on their own. Is I think, part of the challenge here.
0: Yeah. And, and you know, it it shocks me to no end because I go in into prospects and, and have this conversation a lot. And I can't tell you how many times I've been at a company who is a physical goods manufacturer, like airplane engines or cars. And I'm like, guys, stop. Why am I having to tell you this? I know that you would not be in business if you did what you're telling me you're doing for software on the other part of your business. This isn't like just a software company saying, oh, now I understand how physical goods manufacture work. You are those people. Why are you doing such a terrible job of managing your software supply chain? I don't understand why that is the case. I think it's just the mindset of software is not the same as what's happened, you know, with with. Uh, the physical goods. They've had much more time to mature their processes uh, is is the only explanation I can come to.
2: Yeah, and I I think, you know, they're maybe not used to thinking about things in such an adversarial way, right? Like, Mm. you know, if you have a part from a supplier that's not up to spec, you know, it's going to have some failure rate that's higher than you'd like but you don't generally have to deal with suppliers intentionally trying to undermine your business. That's right. They're
0: they're not shipping you a, a, a bin of parts with a bomb in it, right? And, right. and But that's what's happening with with the, the malicious components, right?
1: Which just means they should be paying even more attention to the yeah.
0: software side of <laughs> things, right? That's right. right. Well, and I
1: think to your point about physical goods, like uh, a lot of the folks have conversations with our SaaS businesses, right? And uh, so there's some understanding the vulnerability is still challenges there. Don't get me wrong. Like, obviously, we have an a industry-wide problem. But with the physical good manufacturers, you're seeing the secondary transformation that's kind of sweeping them, too, where Industry 4.0 is happening. And a lot of their factories, a lot of the work they're doing is, becoming iot enabled and mm-hmm. so you're creating more and more endpoints where you could potentially have vulnerabilities potentially have issues and so it starts to seep back into let's mm-hmm. say and uh we've been using the example of a parts manufacturer for cars like there are more vulnerabilities now that are potentially going to be impacting the, their supply chain as well
0: yes that that's why i'm i'm increasingly saying to them what are you guys doing yeah you're, you're literally taking You know, the worst practice over here and now you're putting it on a chip or a piece of software or firmware and sticking it in the car where, you know, every single one of the parts that went into that thing, probably onto the actual circuit that is running this. Why don't you know the software that's running on that thing?
1: And and cars are giant computers today, more increasingly so, too. Like, And that's that's what we want. Like if I'm going to go by connected, very connected. Yeah. Uh, well, this is a, this has been a very <laughs> uplifting conversation, <to> know <laughs> yeah. but I, I really appreciate the, the the context and the data you've brought to this. I'm sure some of our listeners would love to dive deeper in the report, get some more information. Maybe what would be the best place for them to learn more and maybe read the report themselves?
0: Sure. Um, it, it, there's a banner at the top of our site, sonotype.com. Perfect. Um, but, uh, you know, if you search for sonotype. sonatype, and the state of the software supply chain—you'll find it come on pretty out there. Yeah, uh, it's it's every year it gets a lot of links uh, and a lot of a lot of data people referring to it. So
1: I'm sure your SEO team loves that. Oh yeah, yeah.
0: yeah it's yeah. you. You can find it. Yeah. Awesome.
1: Uh, well, Stephen Brian, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate you taking some time out of your busy schedule here at DevOps Enterprise Summit to join us on the DevOps Podcast. It's been a distinct pleasure. Uh, I do have to do our little shout out to listeners. I'm gonna look straight at camera for this one because I got got to talk to you, y'all. I I. I really try to do this every time, but we very much appreciate your review on Apple Podcasts. Like, it means the world to me. Hopefully, it means the world to Brian and Steven, too. They're going to back me up on this. Uh, but but your reviews on Apple Podcasts or Spotify mean the world to us because they help enable us to get incredible guests like Brian and Steven. Be interested to realize that this podcast has a, a devoted listenership, and it's also a big deal for me personally. So if you could give us a review and mean the world, even if you're saying, hey, five stars. Definitely five stars. Uh, like, I love listening to this. I love the does episodes. I love this episode. It doesn't have to be long. Take 30 seconds. You could do it right now as you're you know, finishing watching this on YouTube uh, or listening on Apple Podcasts. It help us a ton. Thanks so much for coming on, y'all. Thanks for having me. Thank us. you.